we had a really fun meetup last weekend and you were able to make it. And I looked over and saw you and my son Dylan chatting at one point. I was busy off doing something. Uh, but I have a I have a suspicion what you guys talked about. We were talking about going to El Salvador for the Adopting Bitcoin conference in November. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, we're really excited. Dylan is coming along with us. He's super excited. Were you giving him some hot El Salvador tips? You know, he was actually telling me about Guatemala. He's interested in kind of exploring the whole region. He wants to sneak away from adopting Bitcoin and he wants to try to travel across as many borders as possible. I, I got I to gotta reel that in a little bit. Yeah, I was trying to explain that it's a small area, but the roads aren't great. So you will spend more time traveling a short distance. There's no I-90 that you can just zoom down at 70 miles an hour. I'm just kind of already preparing for it. I've been psychologically thinking about like, am I going to have like the capacity for spending sats while I'm down there? And am I going to be willing to just spend sats on stuff? And I think I'm going to do it. I think I'll set some aside. I'll set up an app, a wallet just for spending while we're in El Salvador. And maybe I'll commit like a budget or something because I want to I want to uh, encourage the local economy to use Bitcoin while I'm down there. So I think I feel like I have to as a Bitcoiner. Well, it's just convenient because, you know, there are like a lot of small businesses, especially in Bitcoin Beach, that if you give them cash, they're like cooking you a pupusa and then they're going to like dig into a dirty pile of cash and hand you change. Or you can just do sats on the phone and it's just easier. I really like Zeus, just Zeus connecting yeah. to your lightning node. And That's you what can, I was thinking. You know, you can reverse VPN back. I know you've got tail scale set up, mm -hmm. so it'll be super easy. I used uh, Zeus recently, and I think that's if you have your own node, it's so great. It works together and even kind of gives you like a little bit of information about what's going on on your box. So I think that's the one I'll take down there with me, probably on my Drafin OS device. Yeah, if you can make it out there, come say hi to us at the Adopting Bitcoin conference. We'll have more details probably on specifics as November gets closer, but start thinking about it out there, dear audience. It's right now, it's uh, where the Bitcoin home is. People are coming from all over the world. Looks like it's going to be really a lot of fun. There's a whole group of folks coming down at the Swan House, too. So I think there's going to be a lot of Bitcoiners down there. Yeah. And if you have any ideas for workshops or topics we could cover, because I think some of them will be filmed and put on YouTube, then boost them in and maybe we can cover some listener specific subjects while we're there. This is the Bitcoin Datpod recorded on May 5th, 2023. Isn't May 5th a holiday? Is it May Day? Labor Day or something? No? I'm was it yeah? I mean yesterday was Star Wars Day. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I am here in person, rarely, with me. It's Chris. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's it's nice to be with you. On today's episode, we're going to discuss a US White House proposal to tax Bitcoin miners directly. There's a great article in New York Mag that is sort of an expose of Operation Choke Point 2.0 and the regulatory hurdles that are being used to drive crypto and Bitcoin companies out of the U.S. Chris is going to educate me about on-chain Bitcoin metrics via Glassnode, a blockchain data provider. Lynn Alden has a interesting, high-level, almost philosophical article about the structure and implications of open and closed networks, monetary, social, and other. We have an interesting article about MakerDAO, a decentralized collateralized stablecoin. And this article really explores how difficult it is to create a decentralized asset when the backing for that asset is inherently centralized. It's kind of a structural contradiction, really interesting to get into. In economics and banking, First Republic Bank, which we've talked about on the pod, has been sold to JP Morgan, 
We believe the U.S. banking crisis is accelerating, but some of the banks involved disagree. And we also have some privacy news, a Substack newsletter about pay joins and other Bitcoin privacy technology. Then in Bitcoin Optech 249, we're going to cover a proposal for Bitcoin faults and friend of the show, Waxwing. I, I, I just say that about people. I just call them friends of the show. It makes, yeah, it makes me feel like we're important or well, something. Well, they're not enemies of the show. Hopefully not enemies. They're friends by default. Waxwing, please boost in and confirm you're not an enemy. We're going to talk about your thoughts on adapter signatures, which are necessary for new Taproot multi-sig constructions. And then we've got some feedback and boosts. We sure do. You know what? I'm glad you're putting the most upsetting story first because we'll just we'll get through this and uh, the rest is going to actually be a lot of good news, at least Bitcoiners. But uh, I think probably everybody listening that follows the day to day news, and I hope you don't because you don't need that bother. But uh, we've probably all seen that the White House has uh, featured on their blog a proposal by the uh, Council of Economic Advisors to create an excise tax called the Digital Asset Mining Energy Tax that would put a 30% tax on the cost of electricity used by crypto miners. Obviously, this is pointed directly at proof of work. The tax is estimated to raise around $3.5 billion in revenue over 10 years. And they say the primary goal is for crypto miners to pay their fair share of the costs imposed on the local community. And the President's Council of Economic Advisors argues that even if miners use clean, beautiful, renewable energy, it has negative externalities. And so it's actually a bad thing. So we got to tax. It's the only thing we can do. It's the only way they can fight climate change, the Biden administration says. And they say that an increase in power use is bad. Now, this is really interesting on a couple different levels because it proposes a blanket federal tax, basically a surcharge on energy used in crypto mining, which is essentially Bitcoin mining now. So maybe we'll just say Bitcoin mining. Which would no doubt also have then a state local tax on top of it. Well, hold on there. What's really interesting is their logic is that if we leave this to state and local governments, there's going to be regulatory arbitrage. So there's going to be some states that don't punitively tax crypto and therefore miners are going to go there and we're going to have this problem all over again. So to protect local communities, we have to do this at the federal level. But if you think about that, that's really incoherent because in the United States, there's this local versus federal, state versus federal model. And the idea is to decentralize government so that local governments can choose policy that suits their local area. At least that's how it's supposed to work in practice. Right. Because life in Wyoming is quite a bit different than life in California. It's completely different, completely different environment, different economy, completely different job opportunity situation. I don't know if you've ever been to Wyoming, but it's bleak and beautiful. Yeah. And lots and lots of open space and bison and hills that look like the Windows XP background. Was that Switzerland or, or Wyoming? There's, I don't know. It might have been Wyoming. I mean, it's really pretty. I mentioned Wyoming because I actually think they're a great example of a place that could really benefit from a, a mining industry coming in and providing hundreds of really great jobs. If the language around this proposed legislation or the intent is true, that they need to protect local communities from evil crypto mining, then why can't you let that happen at a local level? So it's just a structural illogic right there. And then all of the justification for penalizing 
Bitcoin mining is essentially debunked FUD. There are no other industries that are specifically taxed due to their energy usage. If there's an issue with fossil fuel emissions or, or, or pollution, you tax it at the source. You tax it at the energy source, not at the specific business level. Because by this logic, if you tax all the Bitcoin miners out of, let's say, Texas with their wind energy or, or whatnot that's they have sort of a surplus of, well, you're still going to have the same energy mix. You haven't changed emissions at all. You've just moved those miners overseas. And the other large Bitcoin miners are Venezuela, Russia, China, Kazakhstan, which are much more fossil fuel focused. So you'll actually, without a doubt, raise global emissions. There's no doubt. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It also sort of forfeits the U.S.'s beachhead in Bitcoin mining. And perhaps it's not something that the current administration is concerned in because they believe it's wrapped up with solving climate change. But another administration might see that arrangement differently. It's entirely possible a different president's administration would see Bitcoin as a tool to incentivize investment in renewable, like we've seen in Texas and other places. That president would now have a deficit to come back from because of the actions of this president. We're sort of forfeiting the U.S.'s dominance in Bitcoin mining, which at some point in the future may be strategically important. And there's really no long-term thinking about that potential possibility, even though their own analysis shows that other state actors could begin mining. So it, it seems to me as if we're looking for a boogeyman here, and it's Bitcoin today. But if this were to pass for Bitcoin, this problem that the administration has, where they need to act tough on climate change, because it's one of their primary focuses, well, then what stops that, that focus from turning to porn? Porn servers burn up a lot of energy. And, and, you know, this new AI industry, not only is it potentially dangerous that they just had them all come to the White House to talk about how dangerous it is. Gosh, you know, it uses a lot of energy, too. And we don't want this AI thing to get away from us and use up all this energy. So we better start taxing that as well. So we got to, you know, I mean, porn, it's not really necessary. So we probably should tax that. That uses a lot of power. Well, what about Netflix? Yeah, what about video games? Video games seem antisocial. And I don't know if we'll go that far, but it, it is the same logic that you can apply to any of these things. So you open the door to that and it's dangerously short-sighted. And it's probably one of the more disappointing things I've come that's come out of this administration. It seems sort of... Um, hedging against an investment that could work out long term, because what you have here is a bunch of great clean jobs that can participate in the demand response systems where that is appropriate. It can do things like capture natural gas offing, which can help directly combat climate change, like directly. When you drive around, at least me, when I see those stacks now that are burning, just burning throughout the night, I can't help but see that differently. I can't help but look at that and go, we could be doing something about that. But when you put a 30% cost on doing business, you're just going to incentivize people to go somewhere else. And the technology can go anywhere. Do you have any sense if this is going to get traction? I mean, obviously, the White House is behind it. Their, their council is behind it. They've gone as far as putting it on the White House. They've made it part of the position. It, it seems that could, this could even become a more serious issue as the elections come along. But I don't know if it's actually going to result in law. I think that is what they're getting at. My sense is that this is an attempt to see if this is a good election issue to drive up popular excitement or interest or engagement. I don't think that this is very likely to become law because the U.S. government is incredibly dysfunctional right now. And actually, the Treasury estimates that the U.S. government only has about a month of regular operations in the Treasurer General checking account. 
before the debt ceiling forces the U.S. government to shut down and partially default on some U.S. government debt. So it's a pretty chaotic time. And this bill has a lot of serious implications for the government making value judgments about how people use energy, which, Chris, as you've explored, this could really go in any direction. I mean, we could get a fundamentalist Christian government that, you know, thinks that websites about women's rights are wastes of energy. You know, this is really opening the door to government intrusion in people's lives in a way that is pretty clearly not supported by the U.S. Constitution. So I think it's kind of a misguided attempt to create some energy around climate policy because generally speaking, I think the assumption has been that you know, maybe U.S. Democratic Party voters tend to think crypto's bad. And so right. and, and that climate change is a critical issue. It's probably the Biden administration's most powerful political thing that they have going for them. Right. It's is is the left's consensus on climate change. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is also going to attempt to run. Uh, we'll see how far he gets because there's not going to be debates. But he tweeted on May 3rd that cryptocurrencies led by Bitcoin, along with other crypto technologies, are a major innovation engine. It's a mistake for the U.S. government to hobble the industry and drive innovation elsewhere. Biden's proposed 30 percent tax on cryptocurrency mining is a bad idea. And then he has a whole thread here. The reason why I mention this is I think this does kind of indicate to me that it is a presidential political issue. I don't know if it'll continue to be one, but you have the Biden White House that is floating this trial balloon and you have Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's taking the opposite stance. Part of his platform now is to be a champion for Bitcoin and apparently mining. We'll see where it goes. It may be dropped in a few months. These things can be cyclical or it may end up part of the actual platform. But it's interesting that it's at a point where it's at least involved with presidential politics. Which is wild when you consider it's a completely insignificant use of energy compared to the total usage in the U.S. economy. And it's also an insignificant effect on greenhouse gas emissions You know, if you're not using a completely mm -hmm. crazy mm -hmm. model that assumes that crypto mining only burns diesel, which yeah. is craziness because it's just too expensive. It's not economically viable. Kennedy to the energy part in his thread says, energy, yes, energy use is a concern, though somewhat overstated, but Bitcoin mining uses about the same as video games and no one is calling for a ban on those. The environment, the environment, and this, by the way, Kennedy traditionally has been a massive environmental guy. That's been the platform he's he's actually anti-nuclear he's been an extremist i would say uh the environmental argument is selective pretext to suppress anything that threatens elite power structures like bitcoin this is the lead-in to the new york mag article about operation choke point 2.0 essentially there is a extra legal you know congress hasn't passed a law push being administered at the regulatory agency level to slow down or shut down crypto slash Bitcoin companies that are attempting to integrate with the financial system. And a good example is Protigo Trust, which is a it was a uh, crypto company that wanted a national trust charter, which is kind of like a banking charter. And they spent $80 million getting conditional approval for this trust. And the technicality that they were disbarred on was they were supposed to have the requisite funding to do this trust. And generally speaking, apparently you, you, when you get the approval, you tell all your backers and then they send the funds. 
but they were denied because they didn't have the funds already in their bank account. So it's just a completely BS technicality. So what's really going on? And the answer is that the Securities and Exchange Commission and, I mean, other banking regulators, they are doing what they did to online gambling and online sex work, which happened 10 years ago, which they shut that all down. There was never any official policy, but they just they went to banks that they regulate and they said, listen, if you service these industries, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have to investigate you more. It's going to raise your costs. It's very risky for you to be working with these businesses. It's not safe and sound. Safety and soundness is our concern. So this is extra legal. It's using the application of law to achieve an end that is not specified in that law. It's essentially you've got this power and you're making a value judgment and it's outside of your mandate, but you're going to make that your values reality on the people who you have power over. And we're not surprised by this at all because a great deal of this thinking has been published by the bankers themselves on blogs. In fact, the term policy by blog has been getting kicked around because of the, uh, well, the reality that they're just kind of putting their thinking out in the open. And some of these banks are just taking their cues like the good little bank sheeps that they are and taking action. And of course, we've seen particular maneuvering in like the case of Silvergate. When the Fed forced to sell off a Silvergate, they forbid anybody from buying the crypto part of the business. They just want to spin that down. And they handed that off to, to a bank to particularly just spin that business down, just close on all those customers. And the problem with that is that Silvergate had shareholders. And when a company goes bankrupt, there's a legal obligation to maximize the sale of the remaining assets to give something back to the shareholders. And that's a very reasonable obligation that the success of American business is, you know, that's part of it. And that's just being completely ignored. And it's illegal to arbitrarily deem some assets unsellable. You know, it's just arbitrary. It's there's no basis in law for that. So this is problematic in going after Bitcoin and crypto. Institutions are being degraded, in my opinion, a little bit more. Obviously, this is just one thing that's happening in a world of many things. But it almost is like we have just a central bank when they behave like this. It's like we don't have any independent banks. It's all one bank acting as one. Um, that's what I don't like. And the well-known law firm Cooper and Kirk, they wrote that, quote, the evidence of backroom coercion is only beginning to emerge. But it makes me think, just like the original crackdown, we won't really know all the details until another administration has come in and some of these folks are out of office and they begin talking. And then we can really fill in all the pieces of actually how coordinated this is. I remember I remember 10 years ago, it was it was the same thing like it is now rumors, implications, people saying things. But then later on, we learned, no, it was actually much more detailed and coordinated than we even knew. And I think the same thing's happening right now. In a few years, perhaps with a different administration and these people are out of office, they'll tell a few stories. They'll write a few There are going to be some great books about this. I loved the block size war. Listeners haven't read it. It's a great story of early Bitcoin history. And this is also going to be at least a couple books. And maybe then we'll start to understand what's really happening behind the scenes. The crypto war. The U.S. federal government tried to kill Bitcoin. Or no, you know what my you know what my title of my book would be? Then they fight you. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. punchy. Yeah. Then they fight you. Because that's where we're at. We are so clearly in the then they fight you stage now. And in a way, it's kind of a relief because I've had anxiety about this moment since I first learned about Bitcoin. You knew it would eventually... They all do. This is how it always goes. Yeah, because it, it disrupts power structures. Not to be that guy, but it's exactly the same course that went with Linux. They laugh at you for a bit. 
And that's, you know, they don't take you seriously. And then they enter the fight you stage. And then eventually they capitulate. But we are so obviously, and it's going to be a fight like they've never fought before. Um, so when you see, I mean, look what we have here right now. Do you think it's just coincidence? And maybe this is just me putting on the old conspiracy hat, but it doesn't seem like coincidence that the like five days after the New York Times ran that hit piece about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, that the Biden administration posts this on their blog. And I think it quotes that piece as well. Pretty excellent timing on that. And it just feels like a coordinated effort. And the blog post was pre-written and given to Reuters. So it all kind of touches on the same debunked themes that they all kind of cite. They all self-reference. So they kind of create this consensus by all self-referencing the same debunked information. Right. And didn't you say this is already working its way into chat GPT? Yeah. So I did a little analysis on um, Lynn Alden's article that we'll have linked in the show notes today. And I did an analysis on a Glassnode blog post that we linked today. And in there, chat GPT, there's a plugin you can get where it scans for article bias. And in there, chat GPT knocks Lynn Alden and uh, Glassnode for having a bias because they didn't mention that Bitcoin has both regulatory risks, security risks, and energy usage concerns. And um, it just felt like the FUD was baked in because it's that generic. It doesn't it's not very specific. It just says, well, these are concerns, which is funny because it will ding an, it'll ding an author for not citing why these things are concerned. But then when it raises concerns, it doesn't cite. <laughs> it's kind of. It seems like the AI has just sort of synthesized this concern and now represents it in the answers when you ask it about Bitcoin. It's just pumping out content. There's a lot of content that brings it up. It's mm-hmm. going to show up in the model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lie will spread around the world, right? Before the, sh- before the truth puts its shoes on or something like that. It seems to be the case. And then you get the White House that'll double down on it for political reasons. And you get the New York Times that are also, they're all riling up the base. They're making this a big issue. So it's, it's clearly going to become a thing. The irony is that Bitcoin, it won't care The only thing they'll be successful at is harming U.S. citizens. They will not be successful at stopping Bitcoin. They will not be successful at crashing Bitcoin, keeping it suppressed. It just eventually won't work. It doesn't care. They'll only disadvantage the U.S. The irony is that the U.S. Marshals Service is a large holder of Bitcoin that had been seized in various actions against people they didn't like. And we'll know when they sell that Bitcoin because we can see Bitcoin transactions on chain. And these big wallets are marked they're by by chain data. Yeah. And they're huge enough that they're kind of obvious. Like uh, it looks like if you aggregate the Bitcoin authority, or the U.S. government authorities, Bitcoin wallets, they're holding pretty strong around 205,514 Bitcoin. They got more Bitcoin than Sailor. Because the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, the U.S. has created massive holdings of alternative reserve assets, including gold and Bitcoin, because the U.S. government, I believe, is the world's also the world's largest gold holder. Yeah, although I wonder because a lot of this or all of it is seized Bitcoin. Can they actually keep it or do they eventually are they legally required to sell it? They might not be able to actually hodl this. Well, I mean, due process is sort of going out the window. So they could if there was a. Yeah, I suppose I could come up with a reason for national security the way they had to keep it. Throw it in the treasury, put it on their balance sheet. That would look good. I wonder what their intention is to hold on to it. It's just worth more and more all the time. I wonder. I mean, one of the things this last note article touches on is that people are really concerned about the Mt. Gox stash getting dropped on the market and that people are concerned about the government stash getting dropped on the market. But it remains concerns. It never really seems to happen. If you look at uh, the actual data on chain, which is what Glassnode, that's their whole game, is they just look at on-chain data all the time. It's remarkable. Basically, all the price action we're seeing is short-termers. People that are hodling 
Bitcoin are basically the massive number. It's the biggest, the biggest users of Bitcoin by far. Something like 70% something percent are hodling. So all the activity we see on the network is really just like short-termers and day traders and people that are using it for transactions and stuff like that. And how do we make that statement? What's the source of saying that 70% are holders? They watch the blockchain and they keep track of these all these different wallet addresses and the amounts that they have and the spends and receives that they do. And they graph it. They've got like a 10-year history that they graph it over now. And they watch it all because it's all just on-chain data, right? So you just need the tooling to parse the information. That's sort of where their specialty comes in is that analysis of the data. They're looking at folks that are they what they call the ancient supply. And that's folks that have been holding Bitcoin for seven plus years and the coins haven't moved. And how much of Bitcoin supply is ancient? 4.25 million coins seem to have reached the ancient status. 4.25 mil. And of that 4.25 million stash, only 356,000 have ever moved. Wow. So once people lock, I mean, people lock it up, right? Does it mean that those might be lost coins? Gosh. I hope they are. (laughs) Well, this is a really interesting article. If you want to see on-chain data visualized and learn more about these kind of Bitcoin-specific on-chain terms like hodl bands, ancient supply. Of course, one of the things they do is they specifically track the U.S. government coins. So they have charts just on like the government's up and down inventory of Bitcoin over the years and all of that. They keep a real close eye on that. And they're watching the Mt. Gox coins. So when those Mt. Gox coins start to move, Glassnode will know. So they'll sound the alarm. People can freak out and the price can drop. And those coins are being held by the Japanese trustee of the Mt. Gox crypto exchange bankruptcy. And that trustee is selling them on some schedule to compensate people who lost funds in Mt. Gox. I'd rather just have the Bitcoins. Like, oh, thanks for thanks for holding it for me. I'll take it back now. You know, like you you held it and I didn't have to have all the psychological trauma of holding it. Because I'll tell you, there are times where holding Bitcoin is one of the hardest things I do. Because there's like, I got a broken slide in my RV right now. I would love to get that fixed so much, right? But I just don't want to cash out the sats. I love the sats just a little bit more. <laughs> Diamond hands. Yep. It's hard sometimes though. It can be really hard. Lynn Alden has a article on monetary and information networks. One thing I like about Lynn is that she does a once every six week newsletter, which is kind of about macroeconomics, current events, and her kind of financial trading around those events. And then she also has these research pieces that that are much more general. And this is kind of an insight into how Lynn Alden looks at big topics that then distill down into her sort of short-term and medium and long-term financial decisions. And in this article, she kind of compares the legacy financial system, so banks, fintech companies like Venmo, all of this legacy fiat payment technology to closed source software. So think, I guess, Windows, Mac OS, you know, Zoom, you know, these applications that are useful, but they're, they're closed source, you know, they, they're owned by a company, you're not allowed to modify or change them. And then in this analogy, Bitcoin is open source money, it is open source software, it's available to anyone, it's non-permissioned. And she starts to explore the network effect of these systems. And so one issue with legacy closed source money is a serious compatibility issue. If I'm a user on Venmo, I can't send a user funds 
who's on PayPal, or I might not even be able to send a use a Venmo user funds if they're in a different country. And then you add on to that additional disruptions to these networks, such as KYC, anti-money laundering, and suddenly I might not even be able to send funds because you know I sent funds to someone who was considered a bad actor or risky, and now suddenly I'm treated differently on this network. It's a permissioned network. They have to give you permission to participate. And there are just many people who don't qualify to participate for some reason. Um, like, you know, I have a 14 year old son, as example. I think he I think he could have a little a little bank and he'd be fine. But or my kid, my 10 year old daughter, like it really is not even an option for them. And then you also have, of course, people who are maybe from out of the country or they're traveling. Refugees. Mm-hmm. That's an issue. Getting a bank account as a refugee is almost impossible because all of your documentation, your proof of your identity and existence, it's in a war zone or it was blown up. I just like to remind people that if you look at the survey of at least here in the States, something like 80% of the country thinks it's going in the wrong direction right now. Things are sliding, they're getting worse. And we're really not that far away from maybe you're an outsider. Maybe the system has changed in a way that you're no longer okay with and you want to speak out against it. Or maybe it's happening to a loved one or a family or a friend and they're getting punished by the banking system. I'm reminded of people that donated to the Canadian truckers. Some of them remain unbanked to this day. The people, just because they contributed to a friend or a family member who was fighting for a cause that they believed in, they weren't even participating in the rally. They've had their bank account suspended and they're no longer allowed to open up a bank account anywhere else. I'd like to lean into that a little just because I think that this sense of sort of the country going in the wrong direction, sometimes this can be misread, at least in the U.S., as a kind of a populist right-wing narrative because the kind of right-wing, the the sort of more conservative white establishment in the U.S. has a sense that culture is slipping away from them. And this is represented in the backlash against abortion and some of the kind of pearl-clutching around Christian values, you know, getting, you know, they seem to be trying to get prayer back in school, things like that. But it's not a one-sided thing because, for instance, many families are international these days. You know, they're just from different countries. And having had personal experience of this, when your international spouse or partner is trying to get banked in this country, it can be an absolute nightmare. And it can honestly, it feels like there's something, they're being treated like they're shameful or there's something wrong with them. Because bank accounts are actually relatively expensive to administer because, you have, you know, they have a physical building that people go to and stuff like that. And so they do a bunch of analysis on potential customers to kind of see if they're worth it. And that analysis fails on international customers, thank God, because we're not, we don't yet have like total global surveillance of every individual. But it often means that they can't open a bank account at a a big bank. And so they have to go and find kind of a lower tier credit union that's kind of a little a little shadier, a little more, you know, we, we're not really going to, we can't really do all that analysis, so we'll just take you. And then eventually maybe they can build up that sort of history of using that credit union and get an open an, an account with a big bank. But think about all that friction. That's crazy. So I just want to make it clear that everyone can be affected by this permission issue. Just because the people that are screaming about it right now hold views that you might not agree with, they're coming for you too. It's just a matter of time. These tools of control are always like wielded on everybody. That's just history. Yeah. And when it's closed source software, not only do you have no say, but you have no preview over it. You have no idea how it's implemented or what it's doing. And this is a really kind of weak analogy, but it's entirely possible for Microsoft to bake in 
all the analytics and metrics to monitor what you do on a Windows system, and you can have no idea exactly what it's paying attention to. Do you know if Microsoft is aware when you're pirating software? I've been told they actually can tell in some circumstances by an employee at Microsoft. But how does that work? How can they do that? Can they really do it at scale? I don't know. It's all closed source. I couldn't tell you. All I can tell you is I've been told by a Microsoft employee that they're doing analytics to try to determine how many people running Windows are pirating software. And it's all closed source. But in Linux, you could never do that. You could never do it because the open source code means there's more eyes. There's more people analyzing it, questioning it. And not only that, but people can look at it before it ever even ships. Like we talk about releases here on the show all the time before they even ship to an end user because the process of open source begins with everybody reviewing what's being created. And there's some beautiful network effects there because now the tinfoil hat wearing libertarian paranoiac that you disagree with and you know you couldn't even have a civil conversation he is going through that repo looking for all the spyware in the linux kernel and that's protecting you as a user so there are these beautiful synergies in open source open information systems and to get back to lynn she delves into these synergies and she also notes that there is this potential for open source networks in social media that's being explored right now with the Fediverse, with uh, Matrix, with Noster. So it's a really interesting article. And I mean, at the end, she also talks about the difference between, and I, I wonder if this is almost a separate piece, like what applications require global consensus. And I feel like she might have put this in there because there's been a lot of Web3 talk about decentralized Web3 social media networks. And my opinion is that they're all financial scams promoted by venture capital that are trying to dump worthless tokens that are unregistered securities on retail investors. And kind of the TLDR is that creating global consensus with a blockchain that everyone has to verify and maintain, it's really expensive. And it probably only makes sense for some very specific things like money. Digital identity? Probably not. Tokenized assets? No, they're permissioned anyway. You know, your Microsoft share should not be on the Bitcoin blockchain. Like there's, it gives you no additional benefit. Social media? No, we know social media is garbage. We don't need to save those posts on an immutable ledger forever. So some of these models that Lynn is talking about, like Noster, like Matrix, they don't create global consensus. They connect you to people and data sources you think are useful and if someone shuts down the server, it's all gone. It's not like Bitcoin. And so I guess that's important to say just because Web3 is always trying to button to the conversation and talk about how they're going to create social media on a blockchain. So many normies do not understand that there's Bitcoin and then there's crypto. I hear so often people interchanging you know, random Shibu Inu coin and Bitcoin. And it's so frustrating. You know, I, I love Lynn's work. I think she's probably one of the most intelligent writers out there. And she has this incredible ability to break things down into a big picture view that is digestible and understandable and then helps give you a framework to view this kind of stuff. And I think she I think she's nailing it with this open source versus closed source. I've often felt Bitcoin surprise is the Linux of money. And there's one thing I've observed over those years, which I think we just have to keep in the back of our mind is 
is a lot of things Bitcoin's great at. But there's also some things that Bitcoin might be good at today that as it becomes more successful and more adopted, it's not so great at. When I talk about the benefits of Linux, I never talk about the price because people pay astronomical sums of money to buy Red Hat Enterprise Linux and SUSE Enterprise Linux. As it became adopted by corporations, they began to bake in their costs. If a financial tool is widely accepted by corporations that are ruled by Western law, then inevitably they will have to bake in some anti-money laundering protections, some fraud protections, some compliance protections that will add cost. And so while things may be low fee today, if large companies get involved in their processing transactions, the fees will go up because their costs go up. They're big companies. They cost a lot to do this. They have a lot of things they have to comply with. I think what's different, and I wonder if how you feel about this, Dad, is even with like that being the case with Linux and RHEL today, you can still go get Debian, right? You can still go get Arch Linux, which is totally free. You just you're doing all that work yourself and any compliance stuff is on you. I think you're right, except I would just clarify that big companies getting involved in Bitcoin isn't going to you know, necessarily change Bitcoin at the protocol level. It's just that if you're going to use their interface that might have some easy UX or some convenience, they're going to charge you for it. So you might think you're using Bitcoin, but you're really using XYZ companies software that interacts with Bitcoin. And so you know, that's just the thing I'd point out. But I think it really depends on the development track of Bitcoin. If it's really easy for us to spin up Bitcoin nodes and lightning nodes and tools that allow us to interact with the Bitcoin network and get that value of being able to send money to anybody in the world and receive money from anybody in the world without any permission or anyone being able to you know, police that activity, then Bitcoin has succeeded. You can build as many enterprise tools with Bitcoin integrations. You can charge your customers whatever you want. But as long as Bitcoin is in such a state that I don't need that to interact with it and I can interact with Bitcoin on my laptop or peer to peer with somebody else then Bitcoin has succeeded and we don't care. You know, it's an open system. So you're allowed to do that, Amazon. You can do whatever you want. You may discover that you don't have the advantage in this open source ecosystem, or maybe you do, because I think one thing you've seen over the years is the rise of kind of enterprise corporate Linux. And my sense is it kind of feeds on itself. Once you start using enterprise products, they want other enterprise products. Although I will say, I think the enterprise products are forced to stay relatively competitive compared to something like Windows or old Unix. Like RHEL is constantly attempting to integrate the innovations that are happening other places in the open source community. Like they pushed really hard to integrate Docker. Right? Docker was created outside of RHEL and then they worked their butts off to get it in there to stay competitive with the free distributions that had that. So it, because it's open source and because others can download it and innovate, it kind of keeps the whole ecosystem fresh and moving forward. So the And the big players absolutely benefit. And the ones that learn to harness that the best are the ones like Red Hat that have benefited the best. And Red Hat contributes back quite a bit as well in order to make that whole thing, that whole process actually work. That's true. And also, if you're in the enterprise software game, RHEL is much cheaper than Windows. I've seen the contracts. It is always cheaper on a per unit. It's still cheaper. Yep. I think I like to raise it now because it's not quite the utopia that we think it might be in terms of fees and flexibility and open network, but it won't be as bad as it is today either. And it's important to see the trend. And the trend is that legacy finance is getting worse. Lynn covers the creeping end of privacy in dollar transactions because 
40 years ago, if you made a $10,000 transaction, the bank had to report it to the treasury. Well, 40 years later, $10,000 is not worth anywhere near as much. It's about a slide fix. Exactly. (laughs) And so, so many more transactions are being reported to the treasury. And once we have the next bout of inflation, you know, $10,000 might be your monthly salary. Who knows? Because we've just had two years of double-digit inflation in the U.S. and around the world. So as these limits for financial reporting and monitoring of transactions remain fixed and inflation is always positive, it just means that more and more transactions are being regulated at the government level. They're already being spied on at the corporate level because if you're using this permission software, they've got all your data. So I think the trend is that legacy money is definitely getting worse. I mean, I I'm not I don't have any of these banking or payment apps because they want me to scan my face. What the hell? Yeah, the security, the requirements, it's just it's always getting more and more and more. And they are fragile institutions. You know, it's checking accounts are getting compromised all the time. We don't talk about it because they don't publicize it. But debit cards are a security nightmare. Even with the chip, they're still a security nightmare. We don't talk about it, but it's true. Um, So it's a very clunky system and money will always move to where it is treated better. That's no doubt about it. Again, with this Lin piece, if you zoom out and think about it in terms of an open network versus a closed network, the open network almost inevitably always wins unless the closed network becomes superior. If the closed network offers consumers and whatever it might be, something better, then that wins. And if that's the case, I'll take it. If they can make the existing banking system so dang good that I don't need Bitcoin, I could live in that future. That'd be fine. But I, something tells me these services are just going to get worse. They're going to get more locked down. And the case for Bitcoin will just become more and more self-evident. How much do you know about decentralized stablecoins? Well, you know, that's how I pay everybody in my DAO that I run. So I got to have a decentralized coin. I got to have a decentralized autonomous organization, of course. And um, I like to work with a DAI derivative myself. (laughs) I don't know about you, but (laughs) it's so complicated. I really don't understand much about it because I start seeing all the different names of all these different things they have over there for swapping around. And I just I kind of check out. I feel like we talked more about stable coins early in the podcast because Terra Luna was happening. For sure. Yeah. And it was just sort of a really common thing for people to be parking their cash in while the market was going up and down. And then after Luna and, and Terra, kind of feels like people lost their trust in the stable coins a little bit. Right. There, there were a bunch of projects that tried to say, we're going to do another algorithmic stable coin and it's better this time. But I don't think any of them took off. I know one of them's one of the, you know, one of the one of the Ethereum alternatives it's well known is working on theirs right now. But they're I think I think they're holding it back to time the market personally. Yeah, there's no point in issuing things right now. I think it's still too early. We can't tell if we're in the bear market or it's the bull market upstream. Who knows? And they might not want the regulators up their butt because I think stable coins are going to be a massive focus for the next year or so. There are a couple of problems there. I mean, one is you're issuing a financial derivative without registering with all of the agencies that want to regulate that. So clearly they're going to come after you. The other is if you're a DAO, they're also going to come after you because if uh, you go back to our interviews with Crypto Mom, DAOs do not shield you from legal liability. They might make it possible to coordinate in a pseudonymous way around certain things. But from the perspective of the U.S. Justice Department, a DAO is a general partnership. And when a general partnership does something illegal, that's called a conspiracy. And in a conspiracy, you're legally responsible for the actions of all of the other members. Uh So. That's not going to be good. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, I, better, I better dissolve my DAO real quick because <laughs> right. I don't know what those other guys are doing. 
Remember there was a podcast with a DAO? wonder what happened to them. Hmm. Hope they're okay. They're on with their next thing. Seems like anybody that's thought they were being covered up, you know, shielded by starting a DAO is basically only as protected as the obscurity of the chain that they're using gives them. Yeah, or the obscurity of their identity. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, because they could have started, they could have joined the smart contract under an alias, which, by the way, makes me super uncomfortable because then who are you really making these contracts with? But, right, okay, so if they used a fake name that didn't make any other mistakes, didn't use that name anywhere else on the internet that could be tracked back to them. Shielded their IP address, which is hard to do because you forget, you know, you don't turn on your VPN one day or something. Just ask Ross. But anyway, that was a bit of a digression on DAOs. The way that MakerDAO works, essentially, is... Which are the folks behind the DAI stablecoin, right? Right. So, okay, this is this is how it works, I think. You can see why I kind of check out. Our cohort of Ethereum-focused listeners, please boost in and correct. But there is a smart contract on Ethereum. And when you send collateral, Ethereum-based assets as collateral, into the smart contract, you get out DAI. And DAI is the stablecoin that's supposed to be equal one-to-one with the dollar. And depending on the collateral you put into the smart contract, you get a different amount of DAI. So for instance, I think if you put in Circle USDC, which is a US regulated stablecoin that um, had billions of dollars of their reserves locked up in the Silicon Valley bank bankruptcy. So wah, wah, whoops, you get one-to-one USDC to DAI. Now, why would you do that? Why would you put... Why would I way over collateralize with Ethereum or Bitcoin to get a bunch of USDC DAI? What am I doing here? Am I getting a temporary loan that I can spend with stablecoins? Am I betting on stuff? I think it has to do with other smart contracts in Ethereum that are used for financial speculation that accept DAI. That's that's my only guess. Right. So it's it's a casino. It's kind of an ecosystem that's grown up and it's in February 2022 there was nearly 10 billion dollars of DAI in circulation. There's only 4.7 billion today so it's fallen by 50%, but I mean I like the idea of a decentralized system that I could take my provable crypto asset, collateralize it and get a stable coin that I could use to like cover costs. Like, I dig that idea, but this doesn't seem like the way, Chief. DAI does some interesting things to maintain the one-to-one U.S. dollar value. And I honestly don't really understand it. There are mechanisms to burn DAI when it is under the dollar peg. There are also mechanisms to issue DAI when it's over the dollar peg. And your DAI that you have is tied to your collateral. So if the value of your collateral drops, then someone can actually bid on your collateral and take it. So it's, a, I mean, this is a very adversarial place. And I know, I mean, I've listened to Andreas Antonopoulos, a famous early Bitcoiner and someone who's interested in this technology, talk a lot about using DAI and, you know, in his view, it works. You know, even with volatility, you have an opportunity to recollateralize your position and, you know, the sort of system works as designed, is, you know, I think is something he said. But what I want to talk about is the fact that DAI has a huge amount of collateral risk that you just cannot get away from. So one issue is that because they initially just accepted Ethereum and then they started accepting other assets, they discovered pretty fast that accepting super volatile crypto assets as collateral is not a great idea because the value of the collateral can change really fast and then people get liquidated. So, you know, that can be a 
deterrent to using this system. So then they thought, okay, well, what about stable coins? If you put stable coins in to as collateral, then that's very stable because it's a stable coin, right? Well, the problem is stable coins are always issue. And, and that's, and honestly, we don't quite understand why you're putting stable coins into DAI because it's like you're putting stable coins into a thing to get more stable coins. So, you know, go figure. It's got to be like you said, it's whatever you're spending it on only accepts DAI. The problem is that stable coins are based by collateral that has to exist somewhere. So there's this chain of collateral and right. this chain of custody security. And right, right, of course. As they remark in this article, you know, USDC had collateral tied up in the Silicon Valley bank bankruptcy. Right. And it depegged to 88 cents when that happened. Right. That's really a big deal. And there was an issue because MakerDAO was still recognizing USDC as one-to-one. And so there was an arbitrage opportunity. So there's a lot of complexity here. And I recommend reading the article because it kind of shows that essentially they are having a portfolio management problem that affects large investment firms because they've got a $4.7 billion portfolio in this smart contract. And so before you even get into the issue of the DAO and the governance token and how that works and if there's risk there, the um, they essentially want to hold treasuries. You know, they're moving to a point where their financial portfolio and the derivative supposedly stablecoin token built on top of it is so big that to kind of hedge their financial risk, you know, they don't have the appropriate assets in this portfolio and they're exposed to regulatory custody risk by taking these stablecoins. So I think that this is really problematic. I think that in a perfect world, they'd also have an allocation to U.S. treasuries and corporate debt like Tether does. Yeah, but the banking system hasn't permissioned them to do that, so they can't. They don't have access. So instead, they just create this massive system. I hadn't realized the amount of money that was in there. Somebody's going to notice that. So give it a read. I'm sorry if uh, we appear muddled talking about this article. It's just really hard to wrap the noggin around these smart contract schemes. Probably. And there's probably people in the audience that have that mind or that personality that really kind of can devour all of this and kind of see the way the system works and see the opportunity in there. For me, it just seems like a bag of risk, a complicated, muddled bag of risk is why I've never really been drawn to most types of investments. To me, the Bitcoin investment is so obvious and so straightforward. It's one that works for the way that, you know, buy and hold strategy is my kind of investing. This type of investing where you're moving in and out of die and you're, you're moving your coins around so you can collateralize all the time. That's a real active, feels like risk on kind of trader activity that has never really appealed to me. I'd rather stack sats and go spend an hour in my garden or go play video games with my kids or something than spend any time learning how the intricacies of the system works. But I don't I don't take away from people that can figure it out because I think some people are wired to understand it and they can, you know, some people make a little money at it. It's a thing. Like I, I got a listener to the JB shows who day trades this stuff still, even in the down market, and he's paying his bills with it. He pays his daily bills doing this stuff. So, it, so there's people out there that are just, they take to it. And we don't talk about them much because in my experience, they're few and far between. And most people who engage in this sort of high risk trading get wrecked. Totally wrecked. That's why stack sats and just go about your life. This is the Bitcoin dad pod, not the YOLO DGEN 20-year-old trader pod. Let's all YOLO into this coin this month. We'll all do it together. Let's go, boys. Yeah, it's not us. The SEC would like a word. As they should. I think even last week, we were discussing how First Republic Bank was looking shaky and that perhaps the reason that they hadn't been nationalized by the FDIC was that the FDIC insurance fund had been drawn down. 
Well, a solution has been found. J.P. Morgan has purchased First Republic. And it's, there's some interesting details around this. Actually, other banks had to be found to bid on First Republic to sort of add legitimacy to the sale and or not disguise, but just create the pretense that it wasn't completely arranged by the FDIC. And I think Federal Reserve was also involved because it's the bank regulator. Also, J.P. Morgan sort of had to buy it because they had sent several billion dollars of deposits back to First Republic after the deposits had flown out and been sent to J.P. Morgan. So there's this kind of circular keep the thing alive. And and they discovered while you could solve the short term liquidity problems of First Republic by sending deposits back in long term, they just have this insolvent asset liability mismatch because their portfolio of U.S. government debt is just so underwater due to rises in interest rates. Womp, womp. There was a further complication because I think J.P. Morgan is so large that there is actually some legal restriction to them buying another bank. And so that had to be kind of dealt with as well. So the conclusion of the First Republic saga is J.P. It's now just part of J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan is bigger than ever, more systemically important than ever. And there are multiple other regional banks in the U.S. that are looking really, really shaky to the extent that Western Alliance Bank Corporation is actually fighting with the Financial Times because the Financial Times put out an article, which I think is likely true, that Western Alliance Bank was exploring all their options, which is a uh, cute way of saying we're insolvent and we really wish someone would buy us. And then when that gets out there, the, the stock just starts to drop. PacWest uh, stock dropped 50% yesterday. It's climbing back up today. I wonder, I guess I'm surprised at this point. I'm surprised it's still happening because, I mean, I get why it's still happening, but it just seems like there could be a game plan here to kind of stop this before it continues to spread. But it seems maybe it's uncontrollable. I was looking at the way it worked in 2008, and it was initially a couple of small banks that fell, and then it was quiet for a bit. And then another couple of small banks fell. And then Bernanke came out or something and made some statement about how the U.S. economy was sound and resilient. And then 160 days later, Washington Mutual collapsed. Eerily similar, right? And my euro dollar analysis analyst hero, Jeff Schneider, points out the same patterns that the strategy here is to extend and pretend, create short term liquidity so that these institutions don't just immediately fail. And then they discover that you're in a deflationary money tight financial backdrop and you can't get above water again. You're stuck. You're it's just you're just delaying your default as long as possible. And we're likely in that kind of cycle right now. So the banking crisis is not contained. What's the connection to Bitcoin and crypto? Well, why did I say in crypto? I'm sorry. I apologize. It slips out. You know what? It slips out. Because we read so many articles that, that say, just say that. Yeah. And so many and so many people just lump it together. I forgive. I forgive. Forgiveness is the theme of this week's episode. But, you know, Bitcoin is now rallying on news of bank failures. This is kind of in line with the prediction that it's digital gold. No kidding. Before we started recording the pod today, we were sitting out in the studio living room and I brought up my phone and I saw that the price of Bitcoin was up $900. And before I even looked at the news, I said, oh, I wonder if another bank is having problems. And I pull up the news and there's PacWest down 50%. So now when the Bitcoin price starts to rally, you can almost just guess another regional bank is failing. That's where we're 
at now. It's crazy. I can't believe we're here. We're in an era where presidential politics is including Bitcoin. And when banks collapse, you can tell because without even seeing the news, the price of Bitcoin goes up and you just know, oh, another bank is collapsing. Yeah. If you wanted a financial signal that this is the end of an era of institutional trust, here it is. Anyway, the, uh, the details are, are kind of interesting. I wanted to just cover one more wonky economics article, but I can't open it right now because it's a PDF on the IMF's website. Oh, no. And it's a terrible website, just like the IMF, a terrible organization, the International Monetary Fund. Everybody knows that when you want something to go viral and spread around on the Internet, you want to deploy it in a PDF. Everybody knows that, right? That's how you get things to go viral. Right. Jeez. (laughs) This research paper is pretty interesting because what it does is it examines the theory of wage price spirals in history. And this is actually the core argument behind the Powell Federal Reserve saying, listen, we need to break the back of the labor market so that workers, those greedy workers, lose pricing power so their employers don't have to chase after workers and increase wages. Because, you know, raising wages, you fools, it just creates inflation. If you darn workers would stop asking for more money, things would cost less. Don't you understand? You're just working class. You should just stay there. Why do you want more money? Right. And the euphemism that Powell uses is the labor market's too hot. Too hot. Now, I read this paper partially in preparation for that podcast I released earlier, which was a reaction to Hugh Pill, the chief economist from the Bank of England, who espoused a lot of pretty thin uh, kind of classist arguments like this, that the, the problem with inflation is really the common person is just a sort of a greedy goofball who wants three Xboxes, and that's what's driving inflation. Mm-hmm. And if they would just accept their, their class and their state in the world, we could get over this a lot, a lot quicker. Uh, yeah, episode 75. I, I really enjoyed your reaction. I thought that was it was a good one. You know, I think your instinct not to react to all things out there is a good one. But that one seemed like it was definitely worth it because the entire conversation was just loaded with pretext and classism that when you just stop and listen to what he's saying or just cite actual data, the whole thing falls apart. And you can really hear their framework in which they view how to manage the economy and how detached it actually is from reality. And it's just the banker saying it themselves. It's their own words coming out of their own mouth. So two things. There is an interview with Vitalik that I've wanted to react to for a year now. It's kind of old now, but I just feel like... Yeah, do it. I mean, it might be mean, though. I, I can't tell. Like, I'm very I critical. I, I'm en- very... I enjoyed that breakdown. So if it's, a, if it's a good talk and you got that, okay. that, I think you should consider it. Okay. And then two, the funny thing about this IMF paper is that all of this kind of classist, elitist, sort of inflation is the fault of the poor, whatever, it's actually distilled into this model called the Phillips curve model, which creates this very thin, weak, prejudiced relationship between inflation and employment. And this model is essentially debunked by the International Monetary Fund's own research. So they're even having trouble getting their own institutions to create an academic pretext for these classist policies that are essentially designed to make the common person pay for the mistakes of a ruling class that is attempting to manage a complex economy which cannot be managed. So give it a read if you like that kind of thing. You know, interestingly enough, unemployment was at 4.4% in May of 2007, right around where it's at right now. And then by October of 2009, unemployment was at 10%. And Powell's aiming for 
4.75%. And he just can't get it there. He just can't get it there. And then all of a sudden you hit this cliff. This is what happened at least in 2008 is we hit a cliff and the employment just dropped like a rock and we went from 4% to 10%. It just gaps down. But the takeaway is their unemployment was, quote, running hot before 2008 as well. Until it wasn't. Hmm. It's just menacing. You know, when you look at it, so when you look at these models where they say the, the, the result from these models is, well, we have to get unemployment down. We have to get employment down. We have to get more people unemployed. We have to get more people out of work so that way they demand less and they have less they have less wage demands, they buy less things, it eases the supply chain, it reduces the strain on employers for cost, it brings the cost everything down. They just have to quote feel a little bit of pain. That's a direct quote said several times by Jay Powell. By a very wealthy person. Yeah, who's lived his entire life rich and will be completely unscathed. In fact, will benefit because the rich will just scoop up more assets during all of this and come out on the other end looking pretty. You know, saying that to, you know, one parent families that work 60 hours a week just to meet basic necessities. I mean, I I just don't think that's right. I think that's really cruel. Indeed. And Bitcoin, again, it fixes that because it's rules, not rulers. And this is the problem is when you try to centrally manage something that is inherently uncentrally manageable, you end up managing it to a fantasy that's in your head or a model that you've cooked up that gives you the answers you want and not to the reality on the ground. It has to be a decentralized thing. I wish it could. I wish you could have a room of eight old individuals that can make up the best monetary policy for us all. And we all live very happy, prosperous lives. We have price stability and everybody prospers. And there's a clear economic ladder for all of us to climb. I wish that was a thing, but it isn't the way things work because in reality, the world is too complex and the economy is really in itself a micro universe. We have created a micro universe that is in our shared consciousness and a group of people in a room cannot manage that. This suddenly became like cosmic Bitcoin. I mean, there is a meta aspect to the economy. It really, really is. And that just can't manage it. I completely agree. Now, I think we should choose one. Pay joins or Bitcoin Optech, because we're going to... Oh, I think the pay joins one is kind of interesting, right? Because if I'm following this, it's essentially building in privacy at the transaction level, which would just normalize pay joins, right? At kind of a scale that nobody could then turn their nose up at any kind of coin joined transaction, right? Wouldn't this kind of make pay join and coin, uh, coin join like transactions normalized? Absolutely. So PayJoin is a technology that I believe is possible using BTC Pay Server. And BIP78, right? So I guess it's you build it into the wallet as well. So it's you need it on the server side, the receiver side, and the client side, right? Right. And my sense is that there hasn't been a lot of PayJoin activity. And the reason that this article is coming out is that you can actually see a PayJoin on the blockchain. And it's just like a mini coin join because what happens is the merchant and the customer or or just the, the sender and the receiver, they both send into the same transaction and they receive from the same transaction. So from the viewpoint of chain analysis, you now have to say those UTXOs could belong to either of them. And while that might not seem like a big deal, if you just do that a couple times, suddenly Chainalysis doesn't know if this cloud of hundreds or thousands of outputs is you or someone else or someone else. And it just it adds noise to their analytical models. So it's a really cool technology. And there are several software implementations that are available, including including a browser extension, which is pretty wild. I'm a little cautious around browser extensions, but I mean, if you you know accept that it's a hot wallet, it's, it's really risky, you mm-hmm. know, it's not connected to 
large amounts of Bitcoin, I think there's a place for it. Yeah, it's so difficult to avoid the browser these days. It's such a critical application. And so many of the services we interact with are inside the browser. It's a tricky one. But yeah, the the Bitmask browser extension, uh, which right now supports Lightning. And it adds, uh, I think it's, I think either they're adding or they added on chain as well. And it'll work with Bitcoin Core. But it's a neat idea to have it built into the client. In fact, more wallets are slowly introducing support for BIP78 on the client side. So you, you're seeing a little bit more. I don't quite understand why everybody doesn't do it. Other than maybe it's just work. I don't know if there's like some other security concern or debate within the community, but it seems like it seems like a wallet feature that I would like to get. Like Blue Wallet looks like they're evaluating it. Fix Wallet, uh, their actual hard wallet, they're evaluating it. I don't know. You can do it with an extension on Bitcoin Core. So it's kind of hit and mixed. It's not really like Sparrow Wallet. Looks like Sparrow Wallet supports it for sending, but not receiving. And so I think that these technologies are still new. relatively so new. Is. Yeah, relatively okay. new, relatively little adoption. So I'm not sure you should necessarily be relying on this if you have to make a very private transaction and there's like risk associated with that. I'm looking at you, darknet markets. Honestly, I would go for Monero if you're in that situation. But it's pretty cool to find this development on Bitcoin. You know, there's also this sort of pay to endpoint equal amount coin join protocol snicker, which I've heard about before. I've never used, but it's a non-interactive uh, coin join technology. And that's really interesting because most coin joins require a server online all the time. Snicker doesn't. So that's a big step in making this very approachable. It's something we'd like to see. And I think it's maybe something the audience should probably at least be aware of and keep an eye out or an ear out for anything about BIP78, the, uh, the Bitcoin improvement protocol for that. Um, I don't know. I, I think in order for us to be able to live in a world where coin joins and things like and, pri- and other privacy measures aren't looked at as, oh, you're breaking the law. Um, if we can live in a world where we've normalized it, I think that's a lot better. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, you, you might remember this too. Uh, there was a time when the only people that had a pager or a cell phone must be drug dealers. Like, what do you need a pager for? What? What do you mean? What do you need a pager for? What are you, a drug dealer? And I was completely caught off guard by that. I'm like, no, I do tech support. <laughs> Check out The Wire. Yeah. I mean, The Wire is such an amazing TV show and it, it just like charts the decay of uh, U.S. institutions in the city of Baltimore. It's just insane. And, you know, that's what I think how I feel about coin joins right now. What do you need a coin join for? What are you, a drug dealer? What do you need a coin join for? No, I'm just a weirdo that likes to be private. I guess that makes me strange. And I get myself in trouble because I say, I'm not a drug dealer currently, but I'd like the option to be one. (laughs) Maybe one day. (laughs) Everybody needs a retirement plan. (laughs) I don't know if this professional employment thing is going to work out for me. This episode's brought to you by one of my fantastic shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And I'm going to point you over to the Coda Radio Podcast. You can find it at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Episode 516, There Is No Moat. You may have seen this going around. An internal Google document was leaked that shows that Google believes the long-term winner in artificial intelligence will be open source. And they make a very strong case for that belief. And uh, we covered that in episode 516 of Coder Radio from a developer's perspective and a small business perspective. So go check it out. Coderradio.com or Coder.show or JupiterBroadcasting.com. I really enjoyed that episode. And I've just grown to love Michael Dominic. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Yeah. He's so grumpy, but truthful. And the way he openly talks about drinking during the day, it makes me feel much less ashamed of my occasional day drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you never know what he's going to say. It's good fun. (laughs) Remember, you can get in touch with the podcast, Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com. Or if you do the Twitter at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter, there's also the Matrix channel. You can get the links to that in the show notes. And there's a Bitcoin discussion room and a questions room. And we recommend Element 
Also, Fluffy Chat is another good client. It's all open source, gets you on the federated network, and you can chat in the matrix. And those rooms are actually called Bitcoin and Alts Discussion. And the reason there is the and alts there is to not scare away the altcoiners. We bring them in, we're respectful to them, and then they change their mind or they leave. They slowly change their mind and realize the way of Bitcoin. This is the way. We had an email this week. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listener Cinemode mentions that he's seen this trend of restaurants and businesses refusing to accept cash, instead installing these quote-unquote reverse ATMs where you deposit cash and then receive a debit or gift card for the location. He is uh, concerned that it's getting harder to pay for cash and makes the observation, I really want to be a Bitcoin skeptic, but when money is only numbers in a digital bank account, how is that any different than Bitcoin? I told my wife, I want to be a Bitcoin skeptic, but the world keeps making that harder and harder. (laughs) Truth. I know. It's ones and zeros and it's not even well protected or secured, my friend. And they can't even prove which one of them is yours. It's crazy. He goes by the sprinkler geek too. So if you do um, sprinkler automation, hit your buddy Chris up because I am attempting to get up to speed on that. This is such a great point. And I had not realized that sounds so ludicrous that you would go in, put your cash into a machine and then it spits you out. I mean, imagine if it's even like spitting out one time use plastic cards to go use. Like how wasteful is that? Like you you can't get a plastic straw, but they're going to issue you a plastic gift card to convert your cash, which by the way, cash is reusable. And this one time use plastic gift card is not. This is ludicrous. Think about it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And it's such a, you know, it's basically giving cash, which is theoretically very fungible and getting this completely non-fungible type of money that only works at this one establishment. What a nightmare. So dumb. Somebody's got to be making money on this whole thing. I see a lot of businesses that just have a payment terminal, like a Stripe or Square, Square maybe a little dongle or payment terminal. And I think many of them don't accept cash because they don't have a register or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I agree. You've got to do cash management. You know, now you have to deposit cash periodically. You are going to have employees who have access to a drawer full of cash. You know, there is some complexity there. But there's also perks to a business to having some cash on hand. And there is a point that these credit card terminal based businesses, they're very exclusionary because there are people like we've talked about, you know, you might have trouble getting a bank account or something. They can't have that credit card. That's a great point. When my kids want to go to the store, I give them a five dollar bill. I don't give them a credit card or a debit card. Maybe you are thinking, well, who cares if kids can't buy it? They're not earning whatever. that, That store owner cares. They'd like to make the sale. (laughs) Right. And also, where do we draw the line on who we care about? Like, why not just let everybody transact? Well, and I think for my kids, it's a good experience to learn how to go into a store, give them the right, correct amount of money. They have to do some math. There's like some actual education involved with it. And it teaches them how to do that interaction. Now, later, if they do it with their phone and sats or a debit card, that doesn't really matter. It's training them when they're young to be good participants in this system. So they grow up and learn learning how this works and how to interact correctly with people and all of it. Like you just forfeit all of that. It's just ridiculous. And there's a lot of math involved in the U.S. because prices are not the price in the U.S. They always put on some tax or something. (laughs) It's just bizarre in this country. Uh, Not to mention they're always going up. We got some boosts into the show, too. A Hannigan boosted in with 50,000 sats. That gold story made me lull, they write. That story about the uh, gold getting stolen off the plane from uh, episode 74. I've told that story twice, at least since the show, you know, to people like, you won't believe this. (laughs) 
Zoresmi boosts in 50,000 sats. Are you channeling J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, in that episode title? Are you accepting title nominations? Here's one inspired by the Toronto heist. Another gold story. Uh, same one. And another inkling, C.S. Lewis. In The Great Divorce, More Solid Than Gold. Yeah. Yes, I think that's the title. More Solid Than Gold. No kidding. I love that name, Zoresmi, because I guess it's X-O-R, like a Xor gate in a logical circuit, maybe. I knew there must be a story behind it. I get so tripped up on just worrying about saying it right that I don't really give it much analysis, I think. Uh, Bitcoin Focus came in in response to uh, a checking account to rule them all with 10,000 sats. The Bitcoin Dad Pod is my favorite Bitcoin podcast. I think you guys do a great job of breaking down the complex topics. I'll still be entertaining. The audio quality is excellent. Wow, we haven't gotten an audio quality boost yeah. for a while. Yeah, it's because it's gotten good so they haven't noticed. Too many podcasts rely on Zoom quality. Yeah, calling guests, rehashing the same old topics. Thanks for your hard work. Question, what do you think will be the tipping point for bringing normies to a value-for-value value platform? Honestly, I think it'll be non-value-for-value value platforms just getting worse. Yeah, yeah, I think, that's what's, I think that's what's driving it now is that people are so disenfranchised with the traditional models. And then additionally, as the ad market gets worse over 2023, the ads are going to get worse. And I think that'll annoy people too. Marcel boosts in... Lucky Sats, 8,888 for the Reaction to Hugh Pill podcast. That was great. I would love to see B-Dad and Chris interview Hugh and his peers directly and really challenge their BS excuses and worldviews. Oh, that'd be the day. Yeah. They only go on friendly platforms. Yeah, they but, would not be interested in no. this. No. <laughs> if we receive an invitation and we don't think it's a police entrapment, we'll we'll attend a conference and talk with them, sure. Oh, you know, that would be probably the scenario, right? Is you're at an event and they happen to be there and you get to bump into them. Boy, if that ever happens, you can guarantee we'll try it. We'll try to use the time, that moment, as best we can. So if any <laughs> listeners have extra tickets to central banking, yeah. elite Maybe, political yeah. events, just send them over. We'll go. <laughs> I'm sure it's very swanky. It should be great. We got a grandpa row of ducks, 22,222 sats via Albi, that um, URL code thing we put on the website. And cool. the, the message is the Hue episode was fire emoji. Well thought out and insightful. Thank you. Well, thank you for that big old boost. Batar came in with also the reaction episode, 3,333 sats. And he says, uh, Hugh is a silly man with a silly name saying silly things. Thanks for the dissection, dad. Oh, well, th thanks, everybody. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. Mirror Mortals podcast also boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats to the same episode. Ah, yes, the 2% Aussie inflation scheme for world domination. All our plans are coming together. <laughs> yeah, it's slow and steady. Very slow and very arbitrarily steady. He follows up with another row of ducks. I've noticed that Americans don't travel much outside of the country, so tend to miss just how much a pain currency conversions are. Granted, it's not a day-to-day -day expense, but if you travel one once a year, USD would start to feel a lot less convenient. Totally mm. true. Still, a huge number of Americans, one, don't have a passport, so they can't travel overseas. And also, two, didn't we look up that number that a large number of Americans have never been on a plane? It wasn't it something ridiculous, like the 60% range or something? It, it was huge. Like, yeah, it uh, was really big. 
So that's definitely an issue is that people are just not going out and traveling, right? So they're not they're not really experiencing this. You can, another way to put it is they're kind of living a life of privilege. They've never had to deal with the edges or the downsides of things. So they've never really empathized with why you might want an alternative. I mean, also, there are a lot of Americans who are stuck where they are because this country has basically deindustrialized in most places. So there are a lot of people stuck in once prosperous cities and you know don't necessarily have a way to, to move out. I bet, you, I bet you a ginormous percentage of that is this people just simply can't afford the luxury to travel. And uh, they would love to if they could. MCOT comes in with uh, 2,222 sats, road ducks, with the re- to the reaction episode. Great pod, Dad. I think it's important to hear directly from the horse's mouth. More shows, more shows should incorporate actual sound bites like this. Would love it if you did this kind of thing on the pod more often. Yeah, we've talked about how to like incorporate sound bites and stuff. It's a little bit more of a complexity, but it's something we've kicked around. Yeah. I'm just not that great an editor, to be honest. I don't have that amazing editor Drew that Jupiter Broadcasting does. So it's a little bit more of a learning process for me. But it's easier when you do it in person and a soundboard, right? So the way I would do it is I would listen to that episode with you, clip everything ahead of time, load them all up on the soundboard, or I would just play it from the soundboard machine and then pause and talk in real time because we could just lay down a third track and just record in real time. Well, that's how I did the Hugh thing. I, I downloaded their podcast as an MP3. That's why it doesn't sound great. And then I clipped it as I was listening. Mm. So there was a little bit of manual clipping mm-hmm. there, but, you know, it's relatively. And more often you do that kind of thing, the different tricks you'll learn and stuff like that. Well, thanks for the encouragement. Patrick Colrich boosts in 3,600 sats. Thank you for featuring your podcast on Good Morning Bitcoin Radio. We received 40K sats from Orange Mart last swipe, and we're passing them on to all our podcasters. Thanks for spreading the message. We invite you and your audience to gear up for another month of drilling journeys of experts. There's a lot there. Okay, so basically, someone messaged me on Twitter, and they're running this kind of um, dockerized internet radio software, and they kind of feed podcasts through that. So I, you know, checked it out. It was, uh, you know, kind of Bitcoin-y content and said, yeah, sure. If you want to feature the pod there, you know, it's okay, I think. I mean, I think it's kind of a neat idea that they would run it, receive boosts, and then share the some of the boosts that they, they got with the podcasters who contributed their content. It feels fair, right? Because it's not like they're putting their ads on top of what we're doing and then not sort of sending something back. Check it out if you're interested, orangemart.tv or goodmorningbitcoin.com. That's a great domain name. Actually. Yeah, I really like goodmorningbitcoin.com. A little jelly of that. That's that's a great that's a great one. Faraday Fedora comes in with a row of ducks. In the last year, I've made a point of paying in Bitcoin whenever possible, but I always replace those sats right away. It might be a very inefficient way of buying something, but I wish I could be paid in sats. So if a vendor accepts Bitcoin, I think it's worth to honor that for them. Yeah, I hear that sentiment. I mean, I think it's fun to pay in Bitcoin because, you know, often the person accepting it, they're into Bitcoin, you might make a connection. I actually forgot my wallet at a restaurant the other day and I had a gift, like a gift card there. Talk about gift cards. Someone gave it to me. I didn't, didn't buy a gift card. Okay, just to be clear. But it was a little short. And I had brought my wallet. And so I was like, oh, man, how do I pay you? They're like, oh, you got Venmo or something? I'm like, no, I don't. Oh, I can send you some uh, some Bitcoin. How about that? And they're like, oh, yeah, cool. Let's do some Bitcoin. And so I break out my phone and I'm, I'm like, okay, what wallet do you use? And they're like, oh, no, I was just kidding. Oh. I was like, what? <laughs> Bummer. Right. They thought I was joking. <laughs> and you thought they were serious. That's shame. Well, they could have made themselves a nice little sailor right there. They missed out. Ulysses boosts in 69, 69 sats. Oh. Oh, I see what he did there. 
of the Bitcoin Value for Value podcast. I feel like the Bitcoin Dad Pod does it the best. Wow, nice. They actually engage with your questions or comments, not just read them like an ad. Keep up the great work, fellas. Well, thanks, Ulysses. I love the boost because it's the most spontaneous part of the show. It's like the topics and the memes that get created with between us and the community or the themes. It's like just absolutely the most rewarding part for me. Especially got to remember, I've been doing this for like, you know, three kids lifetimes of mine. So like it's I've been doing this for a very long time. And so when you kind of after a while, I like the new and fresh stuff and the boosts give us a little bit of the show that's always new and fresh. And that keeps it interesting for me. For sure. I mean, we're here to have fun. If it weren't fun making a podcast and engaging with this community, we wouldn't be doing it. And boosts are super fun for us. So if you listen to the podcast and you don't boost in, you think, oh my gosh, these guys, they talk about the boosts all the time. It's because it's fun for us. So it's a big part of the entertainment value for us. And also, you know, it's a great way to kind of get a little affirmation that the work we put into it was acknowledged and received by somebody. Right. Because you are just sending this out into the void. You know, the occasional email doesn't really give you that, that bump necessarily. So if you think we talk about boost too much, boost in and tell us not to. (laughs) (laughs) I love it earlier in the show. If you're an Ethereum person, boost in and tell us. (laughs) No, send in there. Thank you, everybody who boosts. We got got some boosts that didn't have any messages that we appreciated. We got some smaller amounts under the cutoff. We got some people that are streaming them sets. We got some reoccurrings on the Oaks. You guys are the best. And if you'd like to get involved in this fun, you have two paths ahead of you. You can go get a new podcast app and join the Podcasting 2 Revolution, newpodcastapps.com. Or keep your dang podcast app. I'm not going to make you switch. Just go get Albie, getalby.com, top it off either directly or using another method, and then uh, go to the uh, podcast index. You'll find the Bitcoin Dad Pod on there, or we'll have a link in the notes, and you can boost right from their website. You can keep your dang app. It's nice. It's easy. And it's fun. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on May 5th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here in person with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. 